Welcome to Talking Tourism, the podcast series created specifically for tourism operators. Talking Tourism, the expert series, is the ultimate resource for business owners who want to lift their skills to the next level. If you want to learn how to be a better tourism operator, listen on. Hello, this is Talking Tourism and I'm today's host, David Reed. Every fortnight, the Tourism Industry Council of Tasmania brings you conversations with the brightest minds in the tourism industry. The Tourism Council is the peak body for tourism operators in our beautiful state of Tasmania. Each episode of Talking Tourism deals with specific tourism-related topics and with tips and advice for improving your tourism businesses and getting ahead in the visitor economy. You might be listening Uh, to this outside of Tasmania, and if so, welcome, because the content of these podcasts will be relevant for your tourism businesses wherever they may be played. Today we've got Justin Johnston with us, who is a storyteller, and it's very interesting to ask storytellers to tell stories. We could be here for the afternoon, most of the evening, we could be here for a while. Welcome, Justin, how are you? Good, thanks, David. Thanks for having me in. Okay, you're a storyteller. How many people do you think introduce themselves as storytellers? Uh, there are many storytellers around the world. I got the title of storyteller um, given to me. And, you didn't uh, pay for it? No, I did not pay for it. And uh, uh, as part of the Mac One Hotel where, where I work there uh, with Federal Group Tourism, uh, they've got a hotel that is a storytelling hotel, a bit of a point of difference. And when they were... Uh, getting ready to open up, they said they had a bit of a marketing campaign. We need a master storyteller to tell some of these stories, to do some research and to find ways to connect people to Tasmania and Hobart and and, and our um, different layers of history. So they had a... uh, it, it was a job application, but it felt more like a competition uh, to see who was going to be the master storyteller. And uh, I'm still to this day surprised that it ended up being You me. won it. Yes. Well, I, I, I feel that I won it anyway, yes. Oh, well done. So are you a Tasmanian? Not by birth. Uh, I'm one generation back. Uh, my mother's side of the family went over to Western Australia um, just before I was born and... Uh, uh, my, uh, we were all born over in Western Australia, but uh, my grandmother from Tasmania used to come over and when we were little, she, she knew how to work children basically and she would tell stories about Tasmania but she didn't tell them like they were history stories or lessons and she'd say things like, um, oh, when I was a girl in Van Diemen's Land and she just made everything sound very Narnia and, and Enid Blyton. So uh, she had all of us, you know, very interested in the Tassie side of our history. And as soon as I was old enough to leave home, I went back to the Eastern States and uh, and it wasn't long before I sort of went from there down uh, back to Tassie. Okay. Anybody that does a very simple little Google search about you finds something called the Chief Wombat Cuddler. Yeah. What is a chief wombat cuddler? I'm going through life seemingly as the years tick by. Now in my later years of collecting interesting job titles for resumes, uh, in 2016, based on the um, uh, uh, as part of Tourism Tasmania's Go Behind the Scenery campaign, uh, they had 
this competition to be Tasmania's chief wombat cuddler. There was a little wombat called Derek and someone had taken some footage of him running along the beach on Flinders Island and that footage went viral and Tourism Tasmania went, hey, we, you know, let's you know, use this to promote Flinders Island as a, as a destination. And you had to say in 25 words or less why you should be Tasmania's chief wombat cuddler. And I'd just come home from a particularly gruelling day at work in Melbourne and I uh, was sitting on the couch just scrolling through social media and I saw a Tasmania competition, win a competition. I went, oh, that looks like me. I you know, a bit of a thing for wildlife and, of course, Tasmania, so I'll, I'll enter that. And I wrote my 25 words or less and, um, and then sort of forgot about it. And about, oh, probably about two months later, I had just finished booking a trip back down to Tassie for my birthday and I was sitting in a laundromat because my washing machine had broken. And as I'm sitting in the laundromat and my phone rang and there was a gentleman who said, ah, yes, hello, did you enter the Chief Wombat uh, Cuddler competition? And I said, yes. And they said, oh, congratulations, you've, you've won. And I thought, oh, not half an hour ago, I just booked a flight to Tasmania uh, to go down there. Uh, so we got to come down, bring a friend from Perth with me. She'd never seen Tasmania before. So we got to come down during Dark Mofo, uh, went out to Bonnerong, did some wildlife handling classes, went up to Flinders Island, met Derek the Wombat. And um, so the title of Chief Wombat Cuddler is because he was a little baby orphan Joey. It, it comes with great fringe benefits, obviously. Oh, well, that you get to meet a yeah, little um, Well, you get flown orphaned. around. Well, yeah, and you had to get to drive up the highway as well. We, we got to drive that <laughs> bit. And so it was good to show my friend that. But we also got to meet Kate Mooney on Flinders Island, who cares for all the orphaned wombats up there. And um, if any... I mean, wildlife carers generally do a great job, but but Kate, she's a machine. Well done. So you work for Mac One. You said that in your intro. That's when right. I said welcome, and that is a storytelling hotel. That's correct. Okay. Now, most people would say, "What on earth are you talking about, David? What is a storytelling hotel?" So you get in there, and what the bricks tell stories, the windows open by themselves, but is not, it full of ghosts? I mean, what is a storytelling hotel? Not quite that. Though, if sake. we can if we can tell a story and make people think that the bricks might move on their own, that'd be good. But uh, again, it goes back to uh, uh, Tourism Tasmania did their behind the scenery campaign and you know they do those surveys at the airport uh, yeah. constantly uh, when visitors have been here you know what is it that you liked what what brought you here and you know there were options there you know food wine heritage wilderness and uh, people were uh, and, and there's a bit of an, a box for other as well. And people were saying, oh, do you know what? We loved it when we went down there and we we loved when we went uh, oyster shucking uh, up on the East Coast. But, you know, we really loved, you know, the fella who took us out there. And, uh, oh, we loved it when we went to such and such a place uh, because we have told the food there was great. But, oh, you should have met Cheryl, our waitress. What a person. Uh, so people were really responding to not just... Uh, what they were coming down here for, but the people as well. And uh, Tourism Tasmania, you know, they share their their information and Federal Group were looking for a hotel as a way to connect people to Tasmania, uh, characters and the stories. Uh, they've got a property up at Freysenay, Sapphire. People were saying there, oh, we felt connected to the landscape there. And over at Henry Jones, the art hotel, people say, oh, we really feel connected to the waterfront and, and the history there. But they wanted something that that took out on what Tourism Tasmania was coming up with. It's about the people. So 
Uh, there's 114 rooms, and every one of those rooms has got a story of a Tasmanian character. Or if there's, I think there are four that aren't actually people, uh, they might just be particular stories about an area uh, or, or a ghost or something like that. So is this a world first? I mean, are there story – in other words, were you able to do any – research in this or is this an absolute blank canvas? It does seem to be a bit of a world first. Um, I have tried to find if there's another one somewhere. I haven't come across one uh, and I'm told uh, that, well, there's there's certainly not one in the Southern Hemisphere, but right. I can't find one in the Northern Hemisphere <laughs> either. So I, I do believe people are doing, uh, they might call themselves a story hotel or a storybook hotel, but it's not quite uh, the same uh, sort of uh, theme that we're running on. Um, and may I interrupt? Yes. D- d- does does Federal Hotels, uh, is it marketed as a storytelling hotel yeah. or do people find out about this interesting tray uh, after they've arrived? It's absolutely marketed as a storytelling hotel. Right. Uh, you and, and the story for a guest starts from the minute they go, hmm, let's go down to Tasmania. Tasmania might be an, an interesting place to look at or I've always wanted to go there for such and such. So... That's when their story starts and it goes right through the booking experience and when they're on the phone talking to reservations, uh, it, the, the theme is, is it runs right through the whole thing. When you get to the hotel, you asked about where the bricks move and the windows open, but it is written into the fabric of the building as well. Like when you walk through up the steps and you walk into the foyer and the first thing you see there's some uh, Indigenous artefacts around because, you know, they're our first stories, of course, and then when you walk through the decor sort of changes and you sort of see a bit of the English overlay, it's all quite subtle. Uh, you walk around with a storyteller and we can sort of point out what the different things mean and some people figure it out all on their own. And uh, then when you go up to where the rooms are, every single door has got a story on the door and... Uh, when you go inside, there's a little nook inside the room which has something more about the character and a little object or artefact that sort of speaks to that character as well. 114 rooms, correct? Yes. How did you pick 114 stories? Well, I didn't have to. Uh, when I arrived, there were about... <laughs> it's all done, was it? There were, they had a few characters. Uh, there's... Okay, Um, Louise and Ralph Casey, they're a Tasmanian couple and they were travelling around the state and, uh, you know, Louise loves a bit of history, Ralph loves a yarn and uh, yarn in the pub as well. So they're travelling around and they started to hear all these different stories like out on the west coast they hear the story of uh, Barney Williams who you might not have even heard about if you didn't live out Temaway or Smithton, uh, but he was a real character. He was he always said um, Bickups, Bickups, which is like hiccups but with a B, before he said anything, by Joven, Bickups, and you would say to him, oh, what do you think the weather's going to do today, uh, Barney? Uh, pick up some by Jove. I reckon it's going to rain. Uh, so it was a bit of an idiosyncrasy, but he was a good <laughs> yarn teller himself. Like he said, he caught all these uh, crayfish on the West Coast and he had to get them back to Smithton and uh, or maybe it was Marawar. And people said, well, how did you get 100 crayfish? Oh, I, I, I pick up. I herded them like like goats, like cattle, uh, with two sticks. He said he herded 100 crayfish up to Marawar. And uh, so a bit of a character. But if you didn't live there, you might never have heard of him. 
So they got lots of these different stories around the state. And at the same time, uh, when the hotel was getting ready to open, they're saying, where can we get the stories from? And uh, the manager for Federal Group Tourism, uh, Matt Casey, he said, well, my mum's got all these stories. And uh, so there's about 300. So they had to get that down to 114. Then some of them were changed around. We took some out. We put other ones in. And right up to within... Uh, yeah, a week of opening, there was a couple of characters that still had to be cemented down because there might be, uh, we've got living characters as well as deceased ones. And when you've got a living character or a recently deceased, you've got family and they want to make sure the story is told honestly and honourably. And this side of the family might go, yep, that's exactly how Uncle... Bob used to be just like that, but this other side of the family, oh, that's not the Uncle Bob that we knew. So, uh, if you can't get complete buy in, then Uncle Bob might have to wait to another time. But, um, uh, yes, so I only just, had to pick about four. Justin, they are roughly selected around five Tasmanian traits, character Boy, traits. Done your research, that's correct. Oh, I might have done a little bit here there and there. You go. Tell me all about these five. What, what, how do you distill all these funny things about Tasmanians into five different traits? Well, there's, yeah, Tasmanians are like, I, I say we're like Australians but more concentrated. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, these five we're like Australians, the, like Australians, yes, not what, quite what's the same. Well, think of us, um, Tasmania is like um, a magnificent <laughs> snow dome or snow globe, you know, with a bit of Australia and a bit of everything else. Um, so everything gets concentrated in and really right. nicely. Um, so we've got the best of everything. We, we do. Yes, we do. Right, Thank okay. you. Um, so the Tasmanian people uh, they had a few different character traits. Now, asking around and doing a, a few studies to see which character traits people seem to fall most to. And the ones that seemed to come up most for Tasmanians were uh, grounded yet exceptional. Uh, of course, the uh, uh, colourful and quirky, curious and creative, uh, fighting believers, and the one that I think far and away uh, sums up Tasmanians is hearty and resilient. And... Um, that's true of island communities around the world and small communities around the world. Uh, you know, you need a sense of resilience and you, know, you think of those uh, first people who were here, the Palawa people, you know, the resilience they would have had or, and needed, you know, isolated for 12,000 years and then what they, the resilience they then had to continue to show, you know, after the arrival of the Europeans and then those first Europeans, you know, coming to an unfamiliar land. So resilience is just a thing that goes over and over and I think definitely people who are attracted here from elsewhere you know, have a lot of that going through their own character. Okay, so you've... you've I'm interested in how you decide that a story is interesting because it might be um, – how do you select them? I mean, you've said there were 114. We've got these character traits. So um, – and you had 300 to start with. Um, I, I'm trying to work out how, how you decide because this follows on to the next questions about right. how do you decide w which story is worth telling? And, and how do you tell that people are going to say, that's just boring, Justin, absolutely boring, or they say, that's riveting? Well, you look for a story that resonates with people and it either has something like um, triumph over adversity or, or humour is always a good one. Uh, stories where you tell them, people go, oh, but for circumstances, that could be me. I can see that happening to me. We, we like those sorts of stories. 
um, it's like the difference between storytelling and being lectured to, you know, no one wants to be lectured to on this site in 1842, such and such happened. But, you know, if you can say, you know, um, there was this lady and she did this thing and blah, 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 1842. You know, we, we want to know about people, uh, not just uh, uh, necessarily the event. If we hear about the people, we can identify with it. The stories that were chosen have an element of uh, where either people can identify or something that is really interesting in them. Like, well, there's one, we've got Horton Forest and Horton Forest's room faces the mountain. Now, Horton Forest painted a fantastic view of, uh, and Henry Gritton did the same thing, uh, of you know, the mountain in the background looking across uh, Sullivan's Cove and the, the Derwent. And when people are in those rooms, they look outside their window and they see the mountain and they look at this picture painted by their artist and they look at the mountain and then they look at the picture and you can see them, like a little light going on their eyes. So the story of Horton Forest, uh, you know, he was, yeah, he's still got family around today. Uh, but, yeah, he was an interesting character and he always wanted people to call him Captain, you know. Uh, you didn't call him, oh, Mr Forest, you always had to call him Captain. So um, his story, people might not, connect with him as an individual, but they certainly connect with uh, uh, the artwork that he's given us and that they can still see it today. So there's all sorts of different ways to to create interest in a story anyway. And there's also presumably a lot of different ways of telling stories because it's you, you can't be expected to arrive at a hotel and have a personal storyteller greet and meet and greet you? Or can you in your in your Well, hotel? no, you can't ring a bell and say at 10 o'clock at night, oh, can I have a bedtime story, story now, please? please? Uh, no, you can't. Um, um, and not everybody who comes to the hotel is coming to engage with a storytelling concept. Of course, some people are coming just because they want somewhere nice to put their head down for the night or they want to you know, look out across the water at Hobart. We do find we get return visitors who very much get into that storytelling concept. But uh, And you're not, you know, hello, welcome to Mac 1. I'm going to tell you a story now. As none of that business goes on. We have some set tour times where we take people around and, and tell them stories, but, you know, we might as well as tell them the stories, we've got one where we bring viewfinders and we stand them in certain spots as we're walking around Hobart and they see what they can see in 2019 and we tell them a story about that bit of a building there and then they click around their viewfinder and they see that in the picture that a photograph was taken from that exact spot 100 years ago and we say, bang, and here's, so there's a story and there's an old picture as well. So there are different ways. But occasionally we'll get people who say, walk me through the corridors and tell me some of the stories on the doors. But you know, no one's going to be um, forced to have a bedtime story or anything like that. Because what we're hoping in these podcasts is that people are listening and will get inspired and they will think to themselves, this is fascinating talking to Justin or listening to Justin. How on earth can I take this information, this idea, this concept of story and apply it to my business because I'm not there or I'm shy or I'm not very good with this or I don't know what, what the reasons could be. So it's a question of how I'm going to ask you now, how can people who are not professional storytellers like yourself, how can they involve stories in their business? Have you given that some thought over, over your years of storytelling? There's all sorts of different ways to tell a story. It's not necessarily, you know, you know, 
telling the story, you know, once upon a time such and such happened, you know, you can um, let's not forget interpretive dance. Not that I'm encouraging. I mean, if that works for you, fine, go for it. But, yeah, that's that's a method of storytelling too. Uh, uh, some people who are not confident to speak are actually very good at writing and uh, people can write um, some amazing stories. And you, and you find a lot of authors, yeah, they, they'll write beautiful works, but when you ask them to talk, they, mm, they're not uh, so yeah, good yeah, at doing yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, speak to people in your community. They'll have the stories, write down the information. If someone else compiles it for you, um, you storytelling is a great way to, to promote a business because people want to to. Yeah, hear about people like them. They want to know what's happening behind the scenes. They, uh, but as I said earlier, it's not about lecturing. It's yeah, uh, a story. You know, has a. It, well, I was going to say it has a good outcome, but you know, not every story is finished yet. So uh, I'm not really being very succinct here, am I? Um, well, um, um, let, let's then let's move along to what is loosely termed. Emotional connections. How how do how do stories act as the how does how do stories act as the glue between the emotional connection between a sense of place and a person? How does that work? Well, again, it's the fact that if when telling a story, people can identify with it and think this could be something that happened to me if my circumstances were different or or something similar to this might have happened to an ancestor of mine or a friend of mine. Um, if you can get an emotional connection, that is such a powerful thing. I'm trying to uh, think of an example that's not going to bring us down. I mean, one of the easiest connections to get is, is of course, when you talk about you know, great hardship and that's one that people will connect with easiest, but that's not always the best one. For selling, uh, right? That's why I think. But, but triumph over adversity is a is a great one. You know, oh, we battled and we battled to do this, and but look, here is the product, and we now get to share this product with you. Would you like to talk now about how you would advise someone to start their own story if they have a little business in Marawa? They're not good at herding crayfish, crayfish. up the road. They had a try there, but it was an absolute disaster. It was like herding cats. So that didn't work. But they're still determined, having listened to this podcast and your inspired discussion that they want to tell a story, where do they start? They've got to start by sitting down and finding what the starting point is, I suppose. Um, I mean, everybody has a story in them, they say. Um, some of us don't even know what our own story is yet. We're still looking for the, okay, what well, does the story start there or start there? But I think... Once you sit down and start at least writing something, you know, it'll all start to come out. And you might need someone to, to give you a hand to go, oh, that's a great bit. That's maybe pull that bit there out. But um, I would start by talking to people around you, by, by telling your story as you know your story to be. Even if you haven't written it down, you know, do it verbally to, to friends. Find out what their thoughts are. Test it out on a few strangers. Uh, um, you can change the names to protect the innocent and confuse the enemy if you want to. But uh, I think get started. I, how do you start? You just have to sit down and share it with someone. Share it in some way, whether it's yeah, verbally or, or written down. 
What's the greatest connection that's happened at Mac One in your experience? I mean, is, is it is it like repeat customers who suddenly say, I've got to go back to that room and it's not available. Oh, I'll just wait because I need to go back to Henry's room or George's room. I mean, we do me- have a, a couple of guests that, that like the same room over and over. Uh, we also get people who come in and say, hey, last time I had a fighting believer styled room. Uh, this time I want to try um, a character that's hearty and resilient because the rooms are all styled slightly differently according to the character trait as well. Well, there's one lady who when she books, she says, at the, at the moment I'm as I'm booking, I'm, I'm actually feeling uh, quite colourful and quirky. But when I arrive, if I don't feel quite like that, but I feel a little bit more like this, is it possible I could have a different style room? So, yeah, if we were serious? able to. Yeah, Are you serious? Yeah, Someone some people <laughs> really get into that. And, and that's, that's fine because that's all part of their connection working. to it as well. It's working. That's right. Um, so, but from a particular guest connection, uh, we're a small island and you see, yeah, we all know each other's surnames. So if someone says, oh, I'm a, I'm so-and-so Bilson and you go, are you a Bilson from the Meander Valley or from down the Huon Valley? Yeah, which one are you? We, we, we know names in Tasmania. And we had some guests come to stay from the mainland and they had a very, you know, distinctive southern Tasmanian name. And I said, oh, that's quite a, a, a Tassie name you've got there. I said, oh, yeah, we, we, we think there might have been um, uh, a connection here. We, we, we have heard that before. Uh, so when they arrived, I got some information off them that evening, you know, tell me what your grandparents' names were. And we've got some pretty good research tools at our disposal at the hotel. And by the time they uh, had been there two nights, I was able to give them, here's your family tree in Tasmania and here's where you fit into it. Oh, and here's a house out the back of Pontville that someone in your family or connected to your family got and did up back in the 1950s and uh, um, it's for sale at the moment. Uh, the next day those guests came back and said, guess what we bought? They actually bought yeah, the house. Jake. No, they bought the house out of Pontville. So that was a really good connection. Now that's that was a real unusual one. Um, that was a real plus one. Uh, they will always have that, yeah, that connection now to Tasmania. But probably the the one connection that far and away was yeah, and this gave me a good connection too. There's a character that we've got, Mother One-Eye Brown. She was a tinker from about 1919 up until the 1940s. Mother, Mother One-Eye one Brown. Brown. Yes. Now, she was born out Deloraine Way and not sure what happened to her husband, but about 1918, 1919, she took to the road uh, as a tinsmith or as a tinker. Her husband had been a tinsmith. She would sell little cups and things made out of old kerosene tins and um, and um, she would camp by the streams on the side of the road and she would cut down willows and make these amazing willow pegs which she would fasten with a bit of old fencing wire. And she was, you know, maybe five foot tall and about as round as she was tall and as mean as a wet hen. And uh, she would travel the length and breadth of Tasmania and she would force housewives to buy these willow pegs from her. And uh, she, she, she sounds like a bit, a, a bit of a, a bit... Romany, bit, bit of a bit of a gypsy, and in some stories you hear, you know, she had some unruly children with her as well, and there were always dogs running alongside the cart, and she would sleep underneath the cart with the dogs. Uh, and if she camped at the stream near your property, by 
God, you got down there quick smart and gave her hay for her horses and milk for her tea. Otherwise, the next day your haystack's burnt down or your fencing wire's cut or <laughs> she's let your dogs out. Um, she's known for yeah, her filthy language and uh, she loved the song My Blue Heaven. Now, um, a lot of people now in their uh, late 70s into their 90s remember her. But depending whereabouts on the island you grew up, she's got a different name. So out New Norfolk way, she's Mother One-Eye Brown. Up in the north of the state, she's um, uh, Eye Margaret or she's Mother One-Eye or, or, or Tin-Eye Peg was another name. So she's got a different name all around uh, the state. And she just disappeared suddenly in the late 1940s. Um, in researching her, I was inundated by calls from elderly people and old people's homes. Oh, yes, we've got a resident here who saw your request about Mother One-Eye Brown and would you like to come out and talk to them? Because there's a few of the residents would like to talk to you. I went out to a particular uh, nursing home and I got there and there was a common room and everyone was sitting around in this common room all looking a bit drab and sad and maybe a little medicated, I don't know, but it wasn't a happiest environment. So we start talking about Mother One-Eye Brown and suddenly everyone starts perking up. Oh, yes, I remember when she slapped my my sister's face, whatever, and she threatened to to shove an effing jumper down my 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 brother's throat if he didn't stop it. And they used to follow around chasing her and teasing her and chanting things. And um, um but you could see, as I was talking to these people, suddenly through clouded elderly eyes, you could see the, their six-year-old selves coming out again. And it was just um, amazing to see them all so connected to this one person. So this woman was a Had bit of a... Had they shared their stories, do you think, between each other at the same home? Or did they suddenly realise they all knew? Mother- I think maybe they would have discussed it in the past or whatever, but suddenly, yeah, everybody was, was yeah, part of, yeah. Part of the action. That's right. And it gave everyone a... Yeah, a, a good connection, and that's why stories like Mother Brown. You know, she's she's a bit of a villain, but she's someone that that unites people. That everyone's got a great story about Mother One Eye Brown. And, what a character um, she was! An absolute. Which room number is she? I want to say she is one one. So she is. is, my, is yeah, that's. Yeah, I hope I'm correct. I feel one one. No, five. no, but she is. She she is a. Yeah, she's a real. She's a real number in your. Oh, in, she is. She she's she's got herself a door. Yes, yes. she's got herself a door. That's right. Okay, and pegs. Uh, pegs now. I'd love to have some of her willow so pegs, pegs in there, yes, yes. but her willow pegs are very collectible now. They're in museums and art galleries, and uh, you can you know, occasionally find them in um, the right antique dealers. But they'll be, you know, they're worth a pretty penny now. So they're, they're a beautiful, big, long thing that she made. Yes. Well, that's fantastic. Um, uh, I, I, I think that's that's a wonderful story. Well, both of those stories are wonderful. Um, did you make commission on the real estate at Pontville? Anyway, it's a very... No, no, <laughs> no. Being able I wish. To, being able to sell people real estate from a from a genealogical tree, is that the way to say it? A, yeah, a family tree. For me. That's, that's just amazing. What yeah. a story. What a story indeed. They were lucky. They had the wherewithal to do it and the timing was just happened. Okay. I'm just thinking um, while we're talking and, and while we're listening to you, um, we have uh, one of the one of the challenges for Tasmanian the visitor economy, the Tasmanian tourism industry at the moment is regional dispersal, and it's the growth has been Hobart centric over the last few years. 
Would it be possible, do you think, to generate a whole heap of interesting stories, not necessarily about products around the state, but more about the locations? I mean, is there a story about Swansea or a story about Smithton or stories about Bridport or wherever that we could we focus on stories for areas as well as products? Well, at the hotel, we we have made sure that our stories go right around the state. They're not. Um, Hobart-centric. There are certainly some characters that ended up here, but we've tried to cover the whole state going, you know, northwest, south, east. That around the wrong way, but, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are stories all over the state. There's some amazing ones um, and a, a little tucked away areas like um, uh, Weldborough. There's, yes. there's yeah. a whole raft of stories in there. Like think of... Um, uh, Lula Kao Chin, who uh, was sent out from China as a 16-year-old girl with bound feet uh, in the 18th, sorry, 19th century, and uh, she had to travel all the way from China with a uh, uh, small companion because she couldn't walk properly to marry a man that she'd never met out the back of Weldborough. Uh, but then she went on. I think she might have had 11 children, but she became like a um, a, a real maternal figure in the Weldborough community and all that neck of the woods. Uh, she came to marry another Chinese? Uh, that, yeah, correct, yes. Uh, there was, a, it was the tin mining, the I think, tin was mine. going out there. Yeah, yes, yeah. and he was a tin miner. But, uh, and she only died in 1951. And um, But, you know... What she would have needed to, to come across the world somewhere she'd never been before, you know, yeah. didn't know the language, uh, but that, that takes a, a whole lot of, you know, intestinal courage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, and there's lots of stories from out that neck. There's um, uh, I'll get one more quick one from that direction, the, the Ringaruma, Ringaruma gold mine. William Brown um, was the manager of the mine and I think it was in 1899 he decided to throw a big uh, party in an underground cavern in, in the, the gold mine and it was it made the news around the empire. And uh, uh, he was just the manager of the mine but then one day, I think 1905, he dropped down dead in the post office and the town was just, oh, my God, we've lost William Brown. Um, so he just did one big thing but it really Resonated. made, yeah, and um, there are stories like that all around the state, you know. Um, uh, you look for the most remote part of the state you can. If there's a person living there, there'll be a story. I think Denny King down at Melaleuca. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him on a number of occasions. There you go. What a remarkable gentleman. Indeed, yes. Mm. And, his- and he used to talk to various people that I – sorry, he used to mention names and he used to say, Richard, Richard, and I was wondering who he was talking to, but it was his minor bird that was sitting outside. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, yeah, he was a bit of a conservationist himself. Very much so, so yes, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, definitely there are stories all over the state. They don't need to be Hobart or, or Launceston-centric. Uh, we've got a raft of them here. Mm-hmm. Um, advice. What is, the, what is the key piece of advice that you would like to give our listeners about storytelling? If people roll their eyes, they're not listening to your story anymore. Yeah, uh, if they look at their phone, they're not listening to your story anymore. Um, um, be engaging. Uh and this and, and and I'm this is across all media we're yes. talking about whether it be writing whether it be photos whether it be blogs we're talking about all media now or interpretive dance or interpretive yes. dance as you um, said yes, yes. Um, my oh, I, I don't know that I can come up with one piece of advice except for 
be honest and honourable in the story that you tell. Uh, sometimes you might need to do a tiny little bit of embroidering around the edge, um, but as long as you reference that and uh, and people know that you're doing it just as as part of the, the tale, but make sure that the element of truth is is there in your story. Don't don't yeah get get away from the truth. Mm. Justin, I've had a wonderful time listening to you and your stories. And thank you so much for giving us your time this afternoon. No, thank you very much, David. And, um, uh, yes, again, thank you for coming on the show. Um, we've been talking about stories and storytelling with a master, a master storyteller, very difficult to say, a master storyteller, uh, Justin Johnston from Mac One. And, again, thank you for your time. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please tell your other tourism colleagues to take a listen to. Thanks for listening and we'll be back in a fortnight. You've been listening to Talking Tourism, brought to you by Tourism Industry Council Tasmania. For show notes, other materials and episodes, head to tict.com.au. Be sure to come back every fortnight for a new instalment of Talking Tourism. Talking Tourism.